Hey there, it's Joshua Johnson, and this is The Nightlight. We're going to continue our conversation from the last episode with Josh Rice of Stony Brook University about the ways we talk about climate change. How do we have conversations about climate in ways that make people want to listen and take action? It's going to be a little different than our normal show. One, because it's a half-hour episode instead of a full hour. I'm experimenting with that. And two, because, as you can tell, I'm not recording this into a regular mic. It's just the voice memo function on my phone because my studio is dismantled right now. Don't worry. It's going to get put back together. But I was making some studio upgrades this week, and so I can't record it on my regular equipment. But the interview's already been taped, so that'll sound normal. And it'll be a half hour long, so it'll be a shorter format. Let me know what you think of the conversation and of the format. I'm on social media at Joshua Listening. And you can always email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Fear ends up being a feeling that people are left with after hearing a lot of these stories. They're scared, they're anxious, and understandably so. It's a big, scary uh, problem. And at the same time, I wonder if there are stories that have different goals that maybe leave audiences with hope. You know, maybe it's uh, telling stories about larger international collaborations that have been successful. The Montreal Protocol is a really great example of a worldwide collaboration to try to help with that hole in the ozone layer, which was a big problem in the 1980s, who with, you know, any uh, kid growing up in school at that time uh, maybe remembers the ozone problem and what we did to solve that problem, which was the Montreal Protocol, a bunch of countries in the world and the United, the United Nations working together to try to reduce those hydrofluorocarbons or ozone depleting substances um, that were going into the atmosphere and creating that hole in the ozone. And since that uh, particular collaboration, um, the ozone is repairing itself. Uh, the uh, prevalence of those gases in our products has decreased uh, exponentially. Um, some of the uh, health problems related to the ozone issue um, have started to uh, get a lot better for people around the world. So there are so many things that you could point to in this one particular example of the Montreal Protocol as a large international collaboration uh, about the environment that worked. So we're focusing on that subject. We're focusing on the many things that you could pull from it that prove that it does work. So maybe that could be a thing that you could use uh, that could leave people with a different feeling at the end of the day. And I think there are numerous stories um, that could do that same sort of thing. So yes, we have to point out the things that are hard and I think we have to find ways that uh, we can point out that things that might make an audience respond to them in a different way, too. Um, so I don't think people are wrong for telling these stories. I don't think that's the case at all. I think maybe it's just sometimes thinking about the audience a little more intentionally with the particular story you're telling um, and the hope that you or the, the goal you have at the end of the day for them after they take in that story. 
See, where were you when I worked for NBC? Where were you? I needed to drag you. I needed to drag you from 48th and 6th at NBC where I worked over to 57th and 10th to CBS, over to 67th and Broadway. I just needed to drag you around town, over to 30 Hudson Yards to CNN, and just say, listen to this man, because he's trying to save your ass. Like, I feel like there is a fundamental disrespect of the people we are speaking to in some of the ways we talk to them. I would look at some coverage, not just on my network, but on others and go, oh, my mother doesn't talk to me that way. I'm an adult. I'm a grown ass man. You don't get to talk to me any old way because you know something I don't know. And I'd be like, you know, click and I'm gone. And I don't think that people realize that you can't just talk to grown folks any old way. They can walk away from your ass and you won't even know it because you won't be there to hear them go click and turn off the TV. And there's just, but there's also the empathy I have for it is that there is enormous pain in my profession, especially after covering the Trump administration. I think there's a lot of walking wounded journalists who are not talking about the trauma they went through, trying to deal with a country that rapidly ripped itself away from its good senses. I'm sure scientists feel this to a large extent too. And I think that there is a need to kind of make this more human all the way around, whether it's scientists talking to the public about climate, whether it's journalists talking to the public about anything, there's a human piece that's missing. And beating someone over the head with information doesn't work, but... You know, it's that old Abraham Maslow quote, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, I I, re- I resonate with all of that. And you know, journalists had a hell of a time, <laughs> hell of a time, you know, during that, that previous administration. Be glad you don't um, know the limits of it. It was, I mean, yeah. I, I it makes me wonder about going back and talking to some of them and just asking them to download on what that was like. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. It was yeah. worse than I think they've ever yeah. talked about. Yeah. And uh, I have such empathy for that. And, you know, I don't know that there's an easy answer for it, but to your point, for people when they're ready and they, you know, are able to process it in ways that they feel good about and are able to put themselves out there again, um, which is different for everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a a person that could, you know, help in, in that therapy, you know, version of things. Um, that's not my background. But um, for those that are ready and willing to come back and try again, I think remembering that feeling you had so you know in the future what an audience that is you uh, needs or wants to feel like at the end of a communication, I think that is such a valuable tool for then how you lead a communication. And that again is that empathy piece where you know what you would like as an audience member or like a journalist in a pool. Um, And then when it's your turn to switch and you're on the other side of the communication leading it, 
remembering that you were there once. And, and I think that can help you guide the ways that you try to connect with that person or that story you decide to tell or that information you're trying to get them to understand or that behavior you're hoping they might change. And those goals, you know, behavior change, that's a large, large, long-term goal. And we're seeing that with climate, especially. How do you get people to change their behaviors? And it's happening. It's slow but it's happening. Um, I, I feel for you in, in that regard. And I feel for, you know, uh, anybody that kind of has had these traumas, you know, through a lot of these communications in the last, you know, eight years. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if people are, they love what they do and they're passionate about what they do, telling people about it, I think can be so important. And maybe that means sharing some of that difficult side too because i think people might be able to relate to them you know through some of those struggles that they might have had give me an example of some of the transformation you've seen in the scientists who learn these techniques what are they able to achieve accomplish what ground are they able to break that they could not achieve before we see folks in kind of a one day or a two day setting so we train them and then they go off into the world. Sometimes we hear from them again. Sometimes they come back and take more workshops with us. Uh, sometimes they take different ones. Sometimes we get some feedback from them. The most transformation that we might see or change we might notice is often just in the room in the day of as it's happening. Uh, and we ask for feedback a lot throughout the day. And sometimes it's just something as simple that clicks for them, those little aha moments that are, I never considered the audience before in this way. I never thought to notice them or tailor my communication for them. And that is a, a really big thing that we often hear. Uh, we often hear sometimes that they take some of the things away from our workshops and use them with their children and their families at home and and have better communications with their spouse or their partner or their children sometimes, um, which is huge, a huge thing. Um, sometimes it's about the idea of, you know, I, they, they, they talk about how they feel like they're better at small talk conversations where they're able to talk about their work, but in ways that feel a little bit more like cocktail party-ish, you know, that like, oh, what do you do? question that you get asked oftentimes at a, at a cocktail party and then being able to connect with people um, in a way that just feels more conversational because you're curious about that person on the other side. Maybe you ask them a question or two and then that's the lens with which you try to relate. Sometimes people really see that the jargon or the uh, technical language that they're using can be a barrier and just having that pointed out sometimes can be an aha moment for them. So we're looking at a lot of short-term goals that we see in the room um, that often happen with people um, time and time again. And, and that for me is a huge, huge, huge thing. Um, and then, you know, longer term things is they just communicate more. They're trying more. They're trying to relate to people in a different way. They're thinking about uh, the second rule of improv, which I love, which is make your partner look good. And then trying that in the world. And what does that mean? Uh, so wait, what's the first rule of improv? Uh, yes, and. You acknowledge 
the thing that has been uh, presented in front of you. It could be uh, of something that someone said to you. Uh, it could be uh, a, a thing has happened and you're there in the room to witness it, whatever it is. Um, you acknowledge it. So that's the yes. And then the and is, okay, now I have to decide how to keep going. So I'm acknowledging it, and then I either ignore it completely and move to the left, which is a very weird way <laughs> to use yes and, right? Um, or you acknowledge it, and then you incorporate it into what you're doing to find a path forward. Now, uh, yes and is very collaborative because then you're building with the person. You're saying yes, and then you add this on, and then they say yes, and then you add this on. And it can be a really wonderful way to build, collaborate creatively, but also just to have a conversation that feels like it builds and it builds. And I think a lot of people have had these conversations. And then if we're doing the second rule, which is make your partner look good, that is noticing their body language, their facial expressions, uh, asking good questions, um, getting nods of affirmation, uh, making them feel like uh, they're being heard. Uh, there's a lot of like back and forth that feels like a flow state and oftentimes time kind of dilates and you've been in this conversation for about an hour and you're like, oh wow, right. Uh, I didn't even notice the time passed. It was working so well. It was flowing so well. So I think those two things can really flow. But doesn't that get complicated these days? I mean, part of what the challenge is that there's so much disinformation, so many people yes. with conspiracy theories and hoaxes. I don't want a yes and bullshit. How do you handle that? 100%. And I don't want a yes and bullshit either. Uh, but what I think yes and does is it doesn't, again, mean you give up your position. It doesn't mean you agree with the person across from you, but it does mean, oh, you said that crazy thing to me that I know is not correct or true in any form, and I get to decide what to do next. So it's the acknowledgement of it and then how you decide to work through it. And sometimes that just might mean ending the conversation because it's so cuckoo beans or offensive that you can't move forward. And that is a yes and. That's a yes and to a crazy ass thing that was said to you um, or a hurtful thing that was said to you and then deciding to move along. Um, and, and that is sometimes the best way to yes and something. Can I give you um, a so yes and that has worked that for me? Can I give you a yes and that has worked for me in the past? Please, yes. Sometimes, and I got to say, I, my, my study of theater and improv is probably the biggest component of my success as a journalist. It has made the biggest difference. One of the yes ands that has worked for me, although I don't think I ever said it in precisely these words verbatim, but someone would say something to me that was controversial or false or riddled with hoaxes and conspiracy theories. And my response was something to the effect of, yes, and I'm sure that works for you. And then they were like, oh, what do you mean it works for me? And I'm like, well, that works for you. You have found something that fits your needs, that makes you feel comfortable. You have an idea that you are safely enclosed within. I'm sure that works for you. Wow, I mean, it doesn't work? No, 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 it does work for you. Well, what is that supposed to mean? And then that kind of rolls the conversation. It almost forces a question because there's always kind of a yes. central question or a central tension under every scene. And so by forcing them to come up with a new question, it pivots the scene, that moment, instantaneously. And it kind of creates an unmet need. 
and that motivates the conversation in a different direction. It's a way of questioning them without judging them and kind of creating a nag, like an itch that they need me to help them scratch, but I won't scratch it on their terms. They have to kind of keep re-engaging and then we sort of scratch that itch together. It's just a way of making them question it for themselves without me going, why do you believe that? I can't believe you're so stupid. It kind of forces them to do my work for me. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And what I love about it is it makes them curious. And it, it, you have a goal in mind, which is you don't want to point out to this person that what they believe in is stupid because that's going to end a conversation or they're going to get inflamed in a way that is not going to be productive either, right? So I, what I love about that is you're allowing them to maybe bring their own uh, wonders into the next part of the conversation or allow you to then ask the next question or allow them to ask a question that then maybe might lead to something more productive as opposed to emotional <laughs> responses, which tend to not be quite productive. Yeah, those don't go very far. And it also kind of gets us no. both doing what you have to kind of do in an improv scene, which is play the same scene at the same time. We may not be doing the same right. thing, but if you come into it with one goal and I come into it with a different goal, somehow we have to align or the scene won't work. We're doing different things, but we got to play on the same stage. And if I give them something to be curious about that they buy into, then we're kind of, we, we reharmonize and it allows us to work together and to not feel like one of us is going to win the scene. You can't, that's not how it works. Like you either succeed or fail together. Everyone on the stage wins or loses together by making whatever the scene is work. And so it gives them permission to kind of pivot in a way that feels self-serving, but is actually collaborative and kind of, kind of unifying. Let me back up to something you talked about earlier in terms of jargon, technical language, being really wonky. Where is the line, as you see it, between simplifying something and dumbing down the information? That is a constant pushback that I have heard from scientists, journalists, politicos, you know, experts of any kind. Well, I want to explain it, but I'm not going to dumb down my work. Where is that line? What do you read into that? What I read into that is people are protective of their expertise and their experience, and rightfully so. People have studied, they've gotten degrees, they've been in a field for X amount of time. You have all the right in the world to use all of your beautiful jargon and technical language. So let's make that really clear. Um, and especially when you're talking to people in your field, that's the quickest way to get to the next thing because you all understand it. The dumbing it down part for me, which again, I relate to and can understand um, as a judgment because you feel like you are doing something that is maybe beneath the expertise in your own mind. But again, it's being able to go from your own mind to the audience's mind and understanding what they might need to understand that particular word. You can use all of the $500 words that you have, but if they don't, know what they mean. You're speaking a foreign language. I'm sorry, back up. You said something that I think needs to be repeated. It sounds like you said they resist it because they feel like it is beneath their expertise, that it is in a sense beneath them to do so. I think that can be a common feeling is to 
use language that is not uh, jargon or technical and something that is more distilled or simplified uh, is how I might say it, as opposed to dumb, because dumb has like a negative connotation to it. But if we can find those affirmational ways of reframing something and relating to people in understandable terms, you can build them up to anything. But if they don't have the background, there's no point in starting at 100 miles an hour if they can't run that fast. You have to run with them until you know, oh, I can speed up now because you know exactly the route that we're taking, you know the trajectory we're going to go. And if I decide to make a hard left turn, I've given you all the things that you need to make that turn with me. So I think if we're thinking it more about this idea of distilling our language or our concepts in ways that the audience can follow us, because no one wants to be talked to in like really, in terms where you feel like maybe you're being infantilized, you know, like no one wants that. But if you can get that initial understanding and start to build it up based on what you're seeing and their responses, then introduce all that language or say the language and then maybe give like a quick clarification with it to then move to the next thing. Because so often what happens, I think, for folks is they'll hear a term or a concept. And if that expert keeps speaking, that audience is still on that term or concept they didn't understand. And they're still like going through their mental Rolodex of all of the associations or background or experience that they have to try to understand that thing. And then there may be three sentences behind. And we don't want that for people. So if we can think of it less as dumbing down and more of accept the fun challenge of using different ways of talking about your work, uh, then I think we're able to really have new skills because to use the big words, you already know how to do. To use the words that can build up to the big words, that's a different skill set. And if you're really interested in communicating your work effectively, build all of those foundational things underneath to be able to build up to the big stuff and the big concepts for people. So that's my hope is people are even interested enough to you know, set aside some of your um, ego to really want to connect. What would you say is your biggest success story so far in teaching improv to scientists? If we introduce some concepts and we can see early on in some of our workshops that people are hesitant or anxious, and when you say the word improv, it tends to always come up. And we ask about it, we always do, just to get a feel for the room. And if we can notice that thing and work with it as we gently introduce the next thing and the next thing and we build it and we build it and we build it, if at the end of the day they're feeling better about it and see it as a useful skill, then to me that is the biggest success story in the world. Um, Because if you're live and able to adjust and be present with people and get them to understand the really amazing and important things that you do, then my gosh, then we've really gotten somewhere. So for me, I think just people seeing the value of improv and overcoming some fears early on and really embrace the idea and trying things, that to me is a big success. Any students in particular? You don't have to name names, but are there any students in particular where you can describe that moment that the light comes on? Yes. And what I'll say to that is, uh, 
moments. I see what you did there. A, I see what you did. There's, okay. <laughs> moments. Right, it's, it's like 10 points, 10 points. Okay. I see that. I see. So yeah, it's less of like maybe a very particular instance and one about like a broad often experience, which is with physicists. Physicists tend to often push back the hardest on these principles. Um, and, and I understand why, because it is so counterintuitive to how they approach their work through the scientific method. And what we're doing is asking them to jump right into the experiment without asking any questions and to just do it um, and then have them go back and do the pre-work. So physicists tend to be the ones that are the most resistant, the most uh, solid in wondering about the why before they even try something like that. And if we can get some of them to move and see the value of what we're doing, I count that as such a major success. And that happens often with like, you know, folks at NASA, um, uh, folks in uh, the Department of Defense. Um, if we can get some of those physicists to be like, oh my gosh, what you do is like what I do, except just a little bit in reverse, then holy moly, that is like one of my favorite things to be able to do. Before I got to let you go, give me you already noted that this kind of thing is useful in more than just the sciences or on the stage, that there are more applications for improvisational skills than perhaps most people might realize if they don't want to be on Saturday Night Live one day. Give me a few, a few improv tips, one or two that, that are top of mind for anyone to keep in mind who's trying to connect on a tough topic, to connect with resistance in the air, like give me something that the everyday person can keep in their back pocket for those sorts of situations. Words are a vehicle, but the body uh, and fit the face will tell you probably 85% of what that person is going through where the words might be something a little opposite. So notice body language and notice facial expressions because that's going to help you really see what that person is experiencing and going through in that particular moment, especially if you don't think the words are matching <laughs> how their posture is um, coming off. Um, so just really noticing that, first of all, is, is the thing that I would say. Um, second, I think it's giving people some space. And it's okay if there's some silence, because sometimes people need time to process and I think in this very fast-paced world in which Instagram is constantly changing things every three seconds and our intention attention spans are shortening, if we're able to just really sit sometimes in some silence and give people some space to ruminate and think, then I think you're really going to not necessarily always get first thought, best thought, which isn't always the, the case. That, that thought isn't often always the best. Uh, but if you give them some time, I think eventually that space will be filled with something that maybe is a little bit deeper than what you had initially uh, would have gotten out of a person. So don't be afraid of some silence. And finally, where is the work of the Alda Center going? I mean, so much has changed in everything about how we communicate. COVID blew up in-person communication. It's re-evolving, but it's much more digital. It's much more bite-sized through social media. A lot more of it is through online communication rather than in person. How is the center kind of adapting to that? We had to make, as everyone did, a giant pivot toward moving all our curriculum online. 
and figuring out how Zoom was best going to be a platform for us to give people the same valuable experiential uh, experience, for lack of a better word, um, of the workshops. So really understanding the technology, trying to figure out the best way to use the chat, to use the polling functions, to use the camera, to use the audio, uh, to use screen sharing. And I think we put a lot of time into being really good online facilitators of workshops. That then extends to coming back in person. And what we noticed worked really beautifully about Zoom, and especially in the ways that it was accessible, really has translated to our in-person workshops. So as opposed to just picking up where we left off and continuing moving forward, we really examined some of the things that could make it more accessible, feel more inclusive, uh, really bring people along in ways that met them where they were um, as learners. And the Alda Center is very committed to that in our curriculum development. So as we move forward with new curriculums, we have one in particular right now um, for forensics experts testifying in courtroom settings which is a very difficult kind of communication because you're being communicated at by a prosecutor um, or a a defense attorney, and you're communicating to a jury over there, but they can't communicate back to you or ask you any questions about that thing you said. So you're doing a lot of the filtering on your own. So there's a really exciting challenge in that for us that we've started and are working on. So that's a really new, exciting uh, avenue that we are moving forward on. Uh, And then continuing our work with um, communicating for climate scientists, and hopefully we'll be a part of the new climate exchange that's being built on Governor's Island. Stony Brook is a big anchor institution of this climate exchange. Um, And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to provide some programming for some of the folks that will be coming through there to help them get their amazing work out to the public in different ways that can uh, really hear it and relate to it and connect to it. Josh Rice of Stony Brook University's Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. This has been a really helpful conversation. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Joshua. It's been a blast today. And here I am back in my studio under construction. Let me know what you thought of that conversation and of the shorter format for this episode. Whether I go back to an hour or a half hour, I should be able to sound studio quality next week. But until then, you should know that the nightlight comes to you from Sun Arts Media, dedicated to conversation, creation, and connection. If you believe that shows like this could make an impact on America and the world, then consider becoming a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. So until we meet again from a more fully built out studio, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so much for making time for me. Wish me luck with the upgrades. And as always, keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.